Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 6. We are finishing Galatians today. Uh, It has been uh, a couple months to go through and to see. Um, And I would just remind you of a couple things as we get ready to read. Remember that the target audience was the, were the churches in Galatia. So this is a regional letter that went to about seven churches in a geographic region um, called Galatia. Imagine that. Um, and the problem was Paul had come and planted churches in these places. And then along came this group affectionately known as the Judaizers. And Paul would give the message of grace and the message of Christ, and as he did everywhere. And then along came the crowd that said, well, you know, Paul gave you most of it, but we've come to give you the rest. So I know he talked about Jesus, and I know he talked about grace and salvation and things like that. But to really be saved, you've got to do a couple other things. And they would bring in the Jewish tradition, circumcision, the festival days, things like that. And to really be sure that you were saved, you've got to do these things. And they were bringing a false message. And Paul is writing to counteract that. Now we see some of that today uh, in our world. You might see people who say, well, yes, you came to Christ, but if you're not baptized, then you can't go to heaven. Or if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not truly saved. Or if you don't have um, this blessing or that blessing, then you're not really saved. Okay? What they're saying is that the work of Christ was not efficient. It was not enough for you to be saved. You must add some things to it. And anything that Randy would add to the finished work of Christ, is it going to make the finished work of Christ any better? Well, of course not. I mean, how could these hands, which are are sinful, remember we talked about this last week in in the tea of total depravity, they're tainted by sin, how could I possibly add anything that would make the work of Christ better? And the answer is, well, I, I can't. But that's what the Judaizers were saying. And Paul has been arguing against them throughout the, the letter to the Galatians that the work of Christ is what we rely upon. So we come to the last portion of Galatians chapter 6. If you're able, please stand with me. And we see the priority in Paul's life. Much as he wrote in Colossians that we read together earlier. We'll read this, I'll read this final section Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word, that we would see it and understand the power of the cross. And it is the work of Christ alone that saves us. You leave us here in this world that we might live those things out, that we might demonstrate them, that we might give you glory. Lord, we pray that our eyes would be open to your word today. Let it dwell in our hearts richly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Galatians chapter 6, verse 11 to the end. Now see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So as an aside, Paul typically dictated his letters to his amanuensis. And then every once in a while, he takes pen in hand and writes at the end to kind of confirm that this comes from him. So see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh 
who would force you to be circumcised and in order and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. <clears throat> Excuse me. So every monotheistic religion uh, in, in existence has a symbol that goes with it. Okay, we know in, in Judaism it's the Star of David. Uh, in Islam it's the Crescent. Uh, it's not uncommon even for secular movements or countries to have symbols that represent them. Uh, communism, hammer and the sickle, the Nazis had the swastika. In, in ours, we have the flag of the United States. We've got the stars representing the 50 states, the 13 stripes, the 13 original colonies, uh, the red and the, and the blue each have symbolism. I, I won't lay those out for you. Uh, but uh, we also have a national animal. Okay, now I was watching uh, last week the, the musical 1776. Okay, how many of you have ever seen that? It's long, okay, <laughs> but it has some really fun parts in it, um, and there's a scene, and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson are sitting at the bottom of the steps, and they're having a discussion, or with John Adams, if you've seen it, it's always an argument, um, what the national animal should be, and they want to make it a bird, so Jefferson says, well, the, the dove, and Adams says, the eagle, and Franklin says, the turkey. And he says, the turkey has nourished our people from the beginning. It has fed us. It has kept us going. And they have this big argument. Of course, it's a musical, so they're singing back and forth. Uh, but thank the Lord we got the eagle. Okay? <laughs> thank the eagle. But that's the, the national bird. That's the national answer. The bald eagle. We think of the, the, the majestic. If you've ever seen an eagle, you know how big it can be. And those big talons come down, and I don't want one landing on me. Uh, trying to take me away, certainly, but those are big and uh, ferocious, but it is a majestic bird. The symbol of the church, if you haven't gotten the theme already today, it's the cross, okay? It's the cross. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, had a great theology of the cross, and I'm just going to quote a couple of his statements about it. The cross alone is our theology. Without a theology of the cross, man misuses the best things in the worst way. True theology and knowledge of God are in the crucified Christ, and this is my favorite. The cross puts everything to the test. The cross puts everything to the test. Everything, everyone, every human construct, every nation, whether they believe it or not, meets the final test at the cross. So all are subject to the outcome of what took place on that hill far away. Every thought, every idea, every standard of mankind, every man, woman, and child will be held to what took place on the cross. 
Either we will be covered in the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross, or we will rely upon our own works and our own merits to get to God, and we will fall far short of what is needed. If you fail the test of the cross, you fail to believe. You fail to hold true to the one who gave his life for us on the cross. You fail the test of the cross by putting your hope or your trust, your glory in something other than Christ crucified, Christ risen, and Christ returning again. So the unbelieving world views the cross as with disdain, as apathy. Uh, but Paul shows us in some of the things we read there that God you know, has mocked, in a sense, the wisdom of the world with the foolishness of the preaching of the cross. It reveals his wisdom. It reveals its glory. The cross represents a direct challenge to everyone who holds a philosophy of life or a way of life in higher esteem than the cross of Christ. Okay, So if you hold something in higher esteem, it might be a philosophy, it might be a person, it might be a work, it might be an attitude, it might be a belief. If you hold it in higher esteem than you do the cross of Christ, him crucified, him risen, you have a problem for you are an idol worshiper. And you say, oh, Rand, I don't worship idols. Think about it. Now, you'll, you'll have to look at your own life and say, what do I hold in higher esteem than Christ? You may think, well, well I, lo- I love my family. If your family were to go, you would feel terrible. But would that disrupt your relationship with Christ? And if it does, then your family's an idol. Ooh. Those are hard things. But, and I don't want to get there. Okay, I don't want to experience. I don't want to have to see if my family is an idol. But I, I want to keep Christ first in my life in all things. So it can be very difficult. We have to, be, we have to examine ourselves on, the re, on, on a regular basis. The cross says in order to gain your life, you have to lose it. And this doesn't sit very well with most of us. It does, certainly doesn't sit well with those who are only religious consumers those using Christianity to gain a status in the world, to gain anything in the world. If your secular values overshadow your Christian belief, you have a problem. The Welsh doctor who became a pastor, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a pastor at Westminster Assembly for a long time, said this word glory tells us at once that the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the test of every one of us. Every one of us. It is the test of our profession of Christianity. It is the test of our church membership. Indeed, of our whole position and profession. There is no better test of our understanding than our attitude to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the cross passes judgment upon all of us immediately in a necessity. You cannot remain neutral in the presence of the cross. It has always divided mankind, and it still does. And what the apostle says is that there are ultimately only two positions with respect to the cross. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is either an offense to us, or it is the thing above everything else that we glory in. Do you glory in the cross? See, that's what Paul is saying. And we're going to focus our attention on verse 14, so you can make sure you you see that. Let me read it again for us. 
But far be it from me to boast, to exalt in, to rejoice in, to glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's number one that we're going to deal with. Two things. I know I'm supposed to have three points, but I only have two. Three, number two, by which it is the cross, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So first, I'm going to boast in the cross. I will boast only in the cross. Now, the Judaizers, if you look back at the passage, Paul, Paul is being, uh, he, he's really getting on them here. He says in verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised only in order that they may not be persecuted. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. See, the Judaizers come along and they preach that salvation is not complete in Christ. You have to add these things to it. And it's just almost like you can just see them walking around putting notches in their belt going, you know, I got two more Gentile converts circumcised today. Okay, I'm doing good. See, they were boasting in that. They weren't worried about keeping the law. They were boasting in that. Human praise, human approval were the rewards that they sought. So it should have been a goal that showed the Galatians just how wrong these false teachers were. Now, Paul often uses the word flesh, and when he uses the word flesh, sometimes it's this and sometimes it stands for sin. Okay, The fleshly nature, our sinful nature. Uh, Galatians 6, 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that you may boast in that they may boast in your flesh. So saying is that to boast in one's ability to follow the law through boasting of a mark of the flesh, and we learn that the flesh is sinful, so they're actually boasting in what? Something that is sinful. In fact, they're boasting in their own sinful nature, as if that nature is not a hindrance to them getting to the Lord, but is facilitating them getting to the Lord. They're boasting in error. Paul tells us the only worthwhile boasting is the cross of Christ. So how do I boast in the cross of Christ? I wasn't there. I didn't hang on the cross, but what do I boast in that points to it? I boast in my own weakness. I boast in my own helplessness apart from the grace of God. I boast in the cross. I boast in Christ's sacrifice that covers the sin of people like me. So if we understand the work of Christ, then the temptation to boast in our own accomplishments goes away. In fact, Westminster Confession says it is mortified. We are to kill that sense in our lives that I should boast in anything but the cross. Jump to 17, verse 17. Now, Paul is being ironic here um, because he's referencing the marks on his flesh and in comparison to the marks that they are talking about earlier in the passage. Okay? The marks on their bodies represent to them obedience and faithfulness. So Paul says, hey, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, let me give you those marks from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift in the sea. Now Paul does not say 
that the marks on his body represent a salvation that has been earned. What he is saying is that the marks on his body represent the cost of salvation that he was willing to pay, a willingness to suffer. True disciples are willing to suffer. doesn't mean true disciples will get 39 lashes, will be shipwrecked, will have all those things done to them. We may, but we, must, we need to be ready to bear the marks of Christ on our body because that's what he calls us to. Paul had everything, remember, but he says, hey, whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything loss for the sake of Christ. Great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote, Paul declares that he glorified, that he gloried most in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of everything else that Jesus did in his life. Think of the miracles. Think of the eradication of sin in and around the Sea of Galilee as he taught and preached, or eradication of uh, disease as he healed in city after city and town after town. Think of the glorious resurrection. Think of his ascension. Spurgeon lays it out for us. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which in the eyes of men was the very lowest and most inglorious part of the history of our Lord Jesus. Cursed is he who is hung on a tree. That's what the Old Testament says. He could have glorified in the incarnation. The angels sang of it. We love to sing it. You know, Gloria. Wise men came from the east to behold it. Did not the newborn king awake the song from heaven, the glory to God in the highest? He could have glorified in the life of Christ. Was there ever such another life of sinlessness? He might have glorified in the resurrection of, the, of Christ, the great hope concerning those who have gone before. He might have gloried in the Lord's ascension for all his followers' glory in his victory. He might have gloried in the second coming of Christ. Yet the apostles selected above all these gracious things that the center of the Christian system that point which is most assailed by its foes, that focus of the world's derision, I glorify and I boast in the cross alone. C.T. Studd, one of the Cambridge Seven, the group of seven wealthy, very intelligent men who left Cambridge and went to China to follow Hudson Taylor, said, only one life will soon be passed Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. Paul says, I'm going to boast in the cross. And that's it. The second part of verse 14. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what does Paul mean there? Well, you've looked at the cross. You've seen the cross. It's a terrible thing. It's an instrument of death. It's our instrument of reconciliation with the Father. It's the instrument of our salvation. Never was Christ more beautified, beautiful than when he hung on the cross. Think about that. Never was Christ more beautiful than when he hung on the cross. So what does that mean in my life today? Well, Paul gives us two things. Crucified to me. The world has been crucified to me. Paul is saying there, the world has nothing to offer him. I have the cross. The world has nothing to offer me. 
nothing of any value in comparison to what the cross offers. Paul is not saying that he doesn't like music and he doesn't like art and he doesn't like food and, and all of those types of things. He appreciates those. But like Ecclesiastes and Solomon says, life under the sun, life without God, all is vanity. All is vanity. Paul says in Romans 8, the world has been subject to futility. It can offer me nothing. Nothing. Jesus says, what shall I profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? If you have everything you ever dreamed of, but if you don't have Jesus, what have you got? Zip. The glory of the world is fading. It fades on a regular basis. Just think of, think of Hollywood. Every three or four years, a new batch of stars, a new batch of starlets come along and have to replace the old batch. Why? You know what happens to this flesh? Yeah, we all know. We get old. Flesh deteriorates. It's temporary. We like to build things, and we build the highest building in the world, and then somebody with a little bit more money comes along and says, I can build a better building than that. So they build a higher building like that, a more beautiful building. It, it's kind of a legend. We don't know if it's true, but a legend in uh, Russia. Ivan the Terrible, um, who was a terrible guy, uh, he encouraged one of the, he, he uh, signed up with an architect and said, I want you to build the most beautiful church you can ever build, St. Basil's. Okay, it's a beautiful place. And when it was complete, they had the unveiling and the dedication or whatever they, they called it at that time. And the czar asked the architect, do you think you could build something even more beautiful? The architect thought and he said, yeah, I think I could. And Ivan the Terrible had his eyes gouged out. Okay, because he didn't want anything more beautiful than that. But that's the way that we are. So Paul's job, my job, the job of every preacher is to prepare you for eternity. To prepare you for eternity. It's not to help you blend in, but to help you stand apart from the world that we live in. That we might be this little light of mine. That we might be salt in this world. Our lives here are short-lived. They are temporary. Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So every interaction, every attitude, every word, every deed, every belief, as well as our work in our family, our work in our profession, our, our time in our leisure, our time in worship, is to go to glorify the Lord, to prepare us for eternity. This is not our home. We're on our way, like Bunyan says, to the celestial city. We are pilgrims, and pilgrims make progress. Okay, we are going there. We enjoy this world. We see beauty of it. We make use of it. But this is not our home. That's what Paul is saying. The world is crucified to me. Now that last part he says, and I am crucified to the world. What did the world think of Paul? Now remember Paul. He was the best of his generation. And he lays that out in, in all that was done. He was a Jew of Jews. He was the Pharisee of highest zealousness. He was a great intellect. Uh, I mean, all you have to do is, is read some of the sentences that Paul writes, like in the first chapter of Ephesians. It goes on and on, and it's one sentence, okay? Then go read the newspaper. How many words are in a sentence today? Eight, ten. I mean, Paul... Paul 
You just kind of, you know, that's just the way that it was. That's this mind. And he met Christ face to face on the road to Damascus, and he would stop at nothing until the world heard about Christ. And what did the world think of him? Well, they killed him for it. They didn't kill him for sedition. They didn't kill him because he had done something terrible. They killed him because he brought the message of salvation and hope of Jesus Christ. He wanted nothing more than to follow Christ. And for that, the world thought nothing of him. Now, if you're willing to take the same stance as Paul, you can expect the same treatment from the world. You'll be bullied, you'll be threatened, you'll be ridiculed. Your actions and motives misrepresented. Expect to be despised as some sort of madman who believes this stuff. Have your intellect and sanity doubted. Have your teaching described as out of date, filled with ignorance and error, at odds with what is woke and trendy in society or politics, and find yourself an alien in society. And if you find yourself there, fabulous. Because that's where you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to feel at home here. Yes, we live here, we function here, but it's not our home. Rejoice that you are crucified to the world, unimportant to them, and in the weakest position possible. Congratulations, because now you can be made strong. Now you thought, well, I've got to, I've got to be strong in this world. I've got to do when you're weak, then you are made strong. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When you're made strong by Christ, then you can watch him do far more abundantly than you ever dreamed or imagined by the power that is at work within you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we're going to boast in the cross, then we have to understand the position of the world in our lives. It can't hold anything other than what it is, temporary, even momentary in light of eternity. And we have to realize that the world will hate us if we're going to boast in the cross. It will put us out on the margins. It will tell us we don't have rights to to speak the truth of the cross. It will say you can go over in your little corner and have your way of life, but don't bother us with it. For the darkness hates the light. When we shine the light of the truth, when we boast in the cross of Christ, when we proclaim boldly that Christ has come and given his life, that we might know eternal life, that we might be reconciled with the Father, those are words the world hates. But Lord, we know your power. It's been demonstrated in our lives. We know the power to change. Maybe we were some of those who hated you at one time, those who ran from you, yet you pursued us and you grabbed a hold of us and you drew us unto yourself and you made us new creations in Christ. That's the power of the cross. 
power of the cross to change lives. To empower us to go out and to do the same. To present the gospel and see you at work. Heavenly Father, give us a peace about being weak. Give us a peace about not boasting in ourselves, but boasting in Christ. Give us a joy that comes when Christ is exalted above all others in our lives and in our proclamation, in our deeds, in our words, in our thoughts, that you might be first and foremost. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.